I mean, imagine, a- imagine if Tom Brady. Imagine if, and this is going to be a strain metaphor because I know, it's a football I, metaphor. But imagine if Tom Brady like got injured and and missed a game, and so so you took like like somebody who's been his chief lieutenant for a long time, and that person goes in and is just awesome and is amazing, and everybody's like, "This is the greatest quarterback ever! I can't believe it." What would Tom Brady then say to the press? Would he to, be like, "Yes, he's awesome," and isn't it great that he came in and was able to fill this role for our team? Would Tom Brady say that? George, do you? No, have, he would not say that. Do you have any idea what you just did there? Okay. First of all, do you know how Tom Brady came to be? Uh, yeah, actually, he was that guy. Wasn't yeah, he? he was that oh, guy. Yeah, forgotten that. Yeah, nice. Well done, sir. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, you're smart. You know, but, but, you know. but, I'm, but I'm certain that but, but, whoever the, the starting quarterback. Is. Everybody. Welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. And I'm Patrick Ollinger, also an endurance coach and athlete here in Atlanta. Welcome back, everybody. Here we are at the uh, end of July, the uh, greatest month of the year. The, uh, the Tour de France is wrapping up today, as a matter of fact. We're following people at the Ironman Canada going on today. We're following people at the Ironman Ohio 70.3 going on today. Um, we are enjoying coffee as if we are... Is is this what football fans feel like in the fall? You know, yes, <laughs> to some degree. I would say the one thing is football fans aren't uh, experiencing the most pleasant exhaustion when they go for their morning run before. What, what a fantastic, <laughs> fantastic plug in the, the July the in the July heat there. So you know, Patrick and I, before we ever start the podcast, before we start the episodes, we we sit here for a few minutes and we say, okay, these are the things we want to talk about. How do they kind of segue together? What are we going to talk about first? All that sort of thing. And one thing I didn't mention that I did want to bring up with you, with you Patrick, is uh, did you see, since you're sitting here drinking coffee, did you see the recent study that was released about coffee? Absolutely. Yeah, so the uh, Journal of American uh, Medical Association, their journal on internal medicine, they looked at a half million people, a half million people, so not exactly a small sample size, in England, Scotland, and Wales. Participants age, uh, ranged in age from age 38 to 73. And they found that people who drank two to three cups per day, cups of coffee per day, had about a 12% lower risk of early death compared to non-coffee drinkers. Um, it didn't matter whether you were a slow or a fast metabolizer of caffeine. It didn't matter if the coffee was decaf. So, like, it's not even the caffeine that necessarily is doing it for you. Um, but it builds on a lot of studies here in the United States that have shown that uh, the higher consumption of coffee has led to a lower risk of early death in African Americans and Japanese Americans, in Latinos and in white Americans, both men and women. Uh, a daily coffee habit is also linked to a decreased risk of stroke and a decreased risk of type 2 diabetes. Love it. Uh, <laughs> so, it, it's interesting. So, there, I, I went to Purdue University for grad school, and, and somebody there did a study that they found that drinking a glass of wine at night was like, you know, helped right. your heart health. Right. Let's just say that study has never been. Uh, <laughs> no one has ever tried to debunk it. All the everybody in academia is like, that sounds good to me, and I think the right. same will be with this coffee or coffee study. For sure, for sure. Actually, the so the most interesting thing about about the whole caffeine or not the caffeine study, but the coffee study here. Um, I mean, obviously, it's very interesting that 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 coffee. It can actually produce longevity, and it's great news for folks who enjoy coffee. And they don't quite know the mechanism yet. They know it's not the caffeine because, like we said, decaf actually shows it. It could be that people who drink coffee just have more relaxing lives, and they just sort of sit. And I don't think that's it. Um, but uh, it could be that there's some sort of phytochemical inside the bean is probably the leading the leading theory. Um, but uh, but the most interesting thing about it to me is that all the prior research, like the research from 30, 40 years ago 
on on coffee that showed that coffee was bad, that coffee was to be avoided, that coffee was a vice. What they have now come to realize is that those those things that they attributed to coffee were jammed up with smoking. That there was this huge overlap between coffee drinkers and smokers. And and what they now realize is that all these terrible things that they were attributing to the coffee was actually a result of the smoking. And when they disentangle the smoking from the coffee drinking, they actually find that coffee is good for you. And all the bad things that they attributed to coffee are actually as a result of smoking. That's beautiful. That's <laughs> like so, doing a study of a bunch of smokers going for a run while smoking and then saying, see, running's bad for your lungs, you're coughing. It's, it's exactly what it's like. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that is literally exactly what it's like. And so, so yeah. And so, so inside the literature, inside academia, coffee has now done a 180-degree turn mm-hmm. uh, from being something that is bad for you to something that's actually good for you. They found the more coffee you drank, the the better the the effect was the greater longevity you had people that drank five and six cups had more longevity than people who drank three or four wow yeah remember though decaf works <laughs> so keeping in mind all the various other things we've talked about with caffeine yeah you might not want to be taking that much caffeine and sleep and all that sort of thing but anyway um last week we interviewed carrie smith yeah did you listen to it i assume you did how did what did you think as you reflected on it I would say my 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 biggest takeaway was, so you, you know, you asked before, is this what what football feels like? You know, in mm-hmm. you know, in the fall, um, you know, we've seen in other sports the quote unquote money ball revolution, where they're becoming more and more scientific and right. academic with how they approach problem solving. Right, um, and it gets less and less about you know be tough, you know, and more about hey, let's you know recruit athletes that are do this. Right, it's, right. It's less about be tough, and it's more about be smart. And I just that kind of kept playing through my head when I was listening to her when she talked about huh. the VO two max, and she talked about um, kind of just the best thing. One of the best things a runner can do, or an endurance athlete can do, is just to better know themselves. Mm-hmm. Then they know what buttons to press, you know, when to push, you know, um, and and when to kind of fold them up. So mm-hmm. that was kind of my one of my big takeaways at a bit of a high level. But how about you? Yeah, no, that's a great point. I, th- I think you're totally right about that. You know, I, one of my we all have different phrases that we dislike uh, inside of endurance sports stuff like that. Yeah. One of mine is the train smarter, not harder. I really don't like that phrase because yeah. I don't think that smarter and harder are necessarily like uh, mutually exclusive. Yeah, and because. The other thing too is that that sets up a dichotomy of training hard is or, or training smart is not training hard. Right. The training exactly. smart is actually harder than training hard. Right. And they've actually shown that in studies that when you tell somebody to train smart, they actually put in more effort than if you tell them run until you can't run anymore. Because, um, but that's a whole different right. discussion. No, totally. I, I I think you're exactly right. Like smart and hard, you can do both of those things. Right. Um, and so so I um I I like how smart and how much smartness she brings to the training process. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one thing that I appreciate about Carrie is I, I like how she stays on the cutting edge. You know, and yes, indeed, I was fired up when she says that she's not giving people clamshells anymore, but, but just from a straight-up practical point of view, but more from what that represents. And that represents, as she said, you know, time's going on. I'm working with more and more people. I'm reading more research, and I'm coming to realize that that's not necessarily the best thing. And so she's changed it. You know, and so something that two years ago she said is one of the top three exercises that she would give people is not necessarily now what she would do. And so that's something I, I, I admire about Carrie and I appreciate about her and something that I, I try to emulate in my own coaching is uh, is to try and stay fresh and stay cutting edge and, and to not become stale. 
Right. Um, that's right. I mean, by all means, you, you don't want to change something that's working, but at the same time, you want to remain open to the particularities of your athletes and, of course, what, what new research says. Um, and so, yeah. Um, yeah, and I think that's actually something we kind of um, – we don't do enough of in sports in general. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if, if you're a, a doctor, you continue to read, you know, new, mm-hmm. new j- journal articles. You continue to learn. You continue to say, wait a minute, we can do this a little better here. Mm-hmm. And in sports sometimes... And as patients, we want our doctors to do yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. We don't yeah. want them to say, well, I've been doing this for 50 years the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in sports sometimes we'll say, you know, hey, I think, you know, this person's going to win the Tour de France. Mm-hmm. And then we get more data. We see the, you know, how things are shaping up, and we mm-hmm. change our mind. And people mm-hmm. say, "Well, I thought you said this is how who's mm-hmm. going to win the Tour de France, or this is the best way to go." Yeah. It's like, look, we're learning as we go. We're the, be- the best method to warm up for a time trial or something right. like that. Yeah, we're, totally. we're constantly receiving feedback. We're constantly improving. We're kind of constantly sharpening, you know, the way we analyze and make decisions. So mm-hmm. it's 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 a process. Yeah, I also I I totally agree with you on that. Um, I also like how, um, and this is one thing that I like about her i like about physical therapists in general i like it about carrie in particular i like it about josh glass you mm-hmm. know the chiropractor we've had in i like it about like the massage therapist that i go see and stuff like that um the 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 way that she's really kind of looking at the person as a whole human being and she said actually that phrase i'm looking at a person as a whole human being and, and kind of thinking about the mental aspect to it and the mindfulness of it and stuff like that i mean you think about a physical therapist you wouldn't expect a physical therapist right. to be looking into okay, what are the psychological processes that might be actually hindering your 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 physical development, um, or might be getting you injured or something like that. But she's doing that, right? And I think that's that's really cool and very interesting um, and really worthwhile, actually. Um, I'm still kind of hung up on thinking about those old school jocks, you know. And I asked that question of her, like, you know, how do people respond to this? Are people okay with this? That when you're like just doing these little light touches around their their skull and stuff, are they okay with it? She's like, yeah, they are. I still can't imagine like thinking about some of these dudes that I know, mm-hmm. like going to a physical therapist and expecting it to hurt and wanting it to hurt almost because it's only effective if it hurts. Right. And I have a little bit of that way of thinking in my own head, but um, but and then she does all these light touches like um. Well, I think some of that may change as you age because everything hurts. <laughs> <laughs> so you're telling me, man. You're telling me. Um, all right. So anyway, but yeah, really glad with Carrie. And then speaking of kind of reflecting back over stuff that we did, I know there was there was a little bit of retconning that you wanted to do related to a study that you mentioned a couple weeks ago, right? That's right. So uh, two two weeks ago, our last kind of um, news and research episode, I talked about a study that tried to, to better understand mental fatigue. Um, and it's, it's the study itself. If anybody, you know, researched the study and kind of read the actual journal article, it's a little heady. Um, it's a lot about like brain chemistry. So I kind of made the decision to, to keep my synopsis very high level on the podcast. But then we we received a lot of questions from folks online and even offline just at various runs. And I think this is an important study. So I just wanted to kind of go back and kind of take a, um, to try to retell the story again in a way that, that's a little better. Um, so just to kind of backtrack a bit, you know, I think most folks are familiar with the idea of tapering physically, right? We all know you, you train, you train, you train, and then in a week or two before a hard race or a hard effort, you need to, you know, re- let your body rest physically. But a lot of people don't think about the importance of mental tapering and how that could actually affect our races. And the idea behind tapering is that the advantage of training is start to, you know, be outweighed by the advantages of resting, you know, when you get towards the end of training. And that's the, the purpose of a taper, to kind of, 
you know, the benefits of resting far outweigh the benefits of kind of continuing to push, right? And we're kind of familiar with that idea physically. You know, our muscles are tired, our joints are sore, but a lot of folks don't think about that from an emotional or mental perspective. Um, So, you know, what I want to say is when you look at this study, um, this, it started to kind of get into why exactly we need to actually not just taper physically, but also taper mentally. Um, so there's been a bunch of research on the physical effects of mental fatigue. And, you know, there was a really important paper released back in 2009 where the researchers tested the effects of mental fatigue on physical endurance. And what they did is they had a bunch of, fo- of folks sit down in front of a computer screen for 90 minutes. And half of the folks had to perform a cognitively challenging t- task. Now, it wasn't like, you know, playing chess, but it did require them to um, engage. B- engage and be attentive for a sustained period of time, much like what a lot of us do at our work every day, mm-hmm. right? It's not, you know, brain surgery necessarily, but you're having to be engaged and you're having to pay attention. Meanwhile, they had the other half of folks just look watch a documentary, and it was kind of a bland documentary kind of you knew how it was going to go from from the beginning. And then after that, they had the subjects complete an endurance test on a bike. And they found the effects were pretty stark. Um, The folks who had completed the cognitive test task before the endurance test, um, they were the ones who reported much higher levels of mental fatigue, meaning it felt harder to them much earlier on than it did folks who did not experience this fatigue. They actually reported exhaustion about 15% sooner than the folks who just watched the documentary. Mm-hmm. So even a relatively small dose of mental work was enough to have a huge I- effect on physical performance. Yeah, I, I, I've, I've seen a, a similar study. It might even be the same study, um, uh, and I just had the details wrong. Um, but, but I've seen a similar study where, where they took two separate groups of people, of, of, and they also tested them with, with a ride to exhaustion on bikes. Mm-hmm. And one group they had watched cartoons for 90 minutes, and the other group they had watched a Holocaust documentary for 90 millions. Holy smokes. And so, so as you can imagine, unless you're a psychopath, uh, watching a Holocaust documentary for 90 minutes is far more mentally taxing and much more emotionally wrenching than just watching cartoons. And then they go immediately from that experience, either this sort of flippant experience watching cartoons or this really wrenching experience watching uh, a Holocaust documentary to trying to, to, to lay, it, lay it all on the line in a, in a ride to exhaustion on a bike. And yeah. and. When you describe it like that, you can you can guess what the results were, and it's right. that the people who were so wrung out from having watched this Holocaust documentary um, weren't able to perform as well on the bike. Now, physically, they both just sat there, and they right. both just sat there and watched watched the the, the documentaries. Um, but but mentally, one was much more tired than the other, and that manifests itself in a physical disability, if you will, or a phys- physical inability to to perform at a high level. Right, and to to give folks. It's almost hard to put in perspective, too, when this study stated that there was a 15% change in their ability to perform a task. That is a massive change. Yeah. I mean, that's almost like the difference between somebody who is starting a workout for the first time and somebody who ran 800 meters hard yeah. and then starts the workout. Yeah. Um, it's like the difference between trained and untrained, almost. Yeah, right. No, that's profound. 15% so, huge. And I think you know most of us, we're not trained to think that way. We're not trained to think, you know, hey, I had a hard day. So therefore, my times are going to be a little less, or I, so, you know, I'm, my workout is affected in some way. So since that initial study in 2009, there's been a bunch of research into mental, fa- into mental fatigue, such as the study I introduced 
uh, a few weeks ago. And all these studies are just trying to figure out how mental fatigue works and how we can reduce its effects. Um, now, the study I mentioned last time came out in June of 2018, so about a month ago, and it tried to better understand what mental fatigue is just on a fundamental level. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that they present is that mental fatigue is caused by a buildup of a brain chemical called adenosome. So, for example, if you were to try to stay awake all night, then your levels of adenosome will rise and rise and rise until eventually, when you fall asleep, the adenosome will die down again, right? So I almost view it as similar to lactic acid, where it's like it just builds and builds and builds until you get a chance to rest and kind of bring the levels back down, so to speak. Um, Now, this particular brain chemical is produced when your brain has been working hard. So, for example, if you're performing a cognitive task, a cognitively challenging task, just like if you're running fast, it's going to build up a lot faster. Mm-hmm. And your body's not going to be able to clear it out or your brain's not going to be able to clear it out um, to kind of keep the uh, pipes clear, so to speak. Right. Um, now, this chemical is associated with high levels of effort and lower levels of motivation. Mm-hmm. So what that means is not only are you less motivated to keep going, but it actually is harder to keep going in and of itself. Mm-hmm. So it kind of hits you two ways. Um, so, you know, when those levels are high, there's less motivation to complete a task to begin with. And then even as you're completing it, you the efforts feel even harder. Right. Um, now you mentioned the coffee study earlier. Caffeine is a powerful performance booster. Um, and quite honestly, is a crucial part of the working lives of many of us, <laughs> myself included, because caffeine essentially blocks the negative effects of adenosome. What it does is it latches itself onto the receptors and it kind of shields the receptors from the adenosome oh, okay. from building up, okay? So caffeine can actually, can actually be a, a chemical de-stressor. Correct. Interesting. So it's the, the, the important part of this study is that it shows that there is an actual right. chemical change. Right. This is When you feel mentally fatigued at the end of the day, or what some people call decision fatigue, it's not in your head. It's not in, or I guess it is in your head, but it's not in your imagination. <laughs> yeah. It is physically in your head, but it is yeah, not yeah. in your imagination. Yeah. Um, so I think that is an important point to kind of to consider, right. because the idea of you know toughing it up or just right. keep going, right, clearly is not the right answer because you're just going to continue to build up that adenosine and you're going to continue to make worse and worse decisions. Right. Um, so. That that's kind of part one of the study, right? That's what they kind of identified. So then the question is, how do you fight mental fatigue, right? Because that's obviously a state you don't want to be in. Um, you know, as I said, you know what this study showed is that you don't want the adenosine filling up your cranium. You don't want it to kind of weigh you down. So then there's some speculation about what's the best way to not get bogged down by mental fatigue. Is it unleashing a daily blitzkrieg of caffeine on your system until you're Hardlining coffee straight into your system. I'm going to go with no. Okay, good answer there. Uh, is it engaging in mental training, like brain endurance training? Maybe. Then there you go. That's exactly what okay. they're they're kind of saying. But th- both of these options are kind of problematic because kind of like any exercise, the brain endurance training is is time consuming. It takes energy in and of itself. Right. So you wonder, you know, if, if that's really the best way to go. And you probably get to a place where just like physical, well, it is physical training, but, but just like any other training where you sort of plateau out and you have to, to, to train harder in order to still get an effect, right? Yeah, that's what one would assume, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, so the, I, I remember saying that the takeaway for me when you talked about this study a couple of weeks ago was, was that 
when we talk about mental fatigue and, and we've talked about mental fatigue a great deal on this podcast, um, uh, even before Patrick came on the podcast, we had talked about it. And so if nothing else, folks should have taken away over the course of the past couple of years that that when you have mental fatigue, it's going to affect your physical ability. Mm-hmm. Like everybody should should have that. Um, and perhaps as a corollary to that, you should take away that, that during times when you're trying to recover physically, you should also be trying to recover mentally. Correct. Um, and so so hopefully everybody has kind of gotten that message and, and ha- has that takeaway and knows that that's a fundamental part of something that we believe um, is, is key to your, your, your physical abilities. Um, to me, the thing that stood out about this is that you know, in trying to figure out what that mechanism is, like what it, why is it that the mental fatigue has a physical result, um, that there's actually a chemical element to that. Right. Um, and to me that makes it feel much more definitive. It makes it feel much more, um, determinate if you will. Right. Um, because, because you can't get around that. Um, kind of like you said, you know, you can't just sort of toughen up and just sort of suck it up. Oh, well, you know, I'm tired from watching this Holocaust documentary. I'm ha- tired from, from this hard day at work, but I'm going to suck it up and I'm still going to have a really good workout. Right. Well, no, if it's chemical, you can't suck it up. Like that's, you can't just suck it up and overcome your brain chemistry. Right. That's not how that works. And so, um, so yeah, the, the, the fact that there's, there's actually a chemical element to it, to me suggests that it's not something you can just have a simple workaround for right and i think that's important and 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 i would say maybe the use the word simple maybe the simplest solution to fighting mental fatigue is to a acknowledge it it, it exists yeah and then b to plan some mental tapers throughout the week and especially at the end of a long training cycle heading into a mm-hmm. big race yeah right no one says I like that term mental taper mm-hmm. you know no one says to themselves you know i'm going to run three hours a day at mm-hmm. marathon goal pace or whatever mm-hmm. every day you know we can, we acknowledge that there are limits there, and maybe we need to physical acknowledge. Limits. Excuse mm-hmm. me, yeah, the physical limits. Thank you. You know, I think we also need to, to um, recognize there are mental limits as well. Right on. I can tell you, I have made the mistake in the past of. Uh, so to give some folks some background, I worked uh, as a consultant for several years. So I was working in different workplaces mm-hmm. every few months, mm-hmm. and in some work, you know, because you're traveling to different projects, different client sites, etc. And on some client sites, Friday was the hard day of the week. Mm-hmm. On some client sites, Wednesday was the hardest day of the week. Right. And honestly, I would have to get to the client site before I could figure out what my run schedule was going to be. Mm-hmm. Because if Friday was the hardest day of the week, mm-hmm. from a physical perspective, that may be the best day to do a tempo run, but it was never going to get done. Right. There were several times where I would try to force it, and mm-hmm. it never worked because by the time I showed up to the track, I was so emotionally and mentally drained. Right. I it, I, I don't even know how to say it. I could mash the gas all I want. Yeah. That car wasn't going over 30 right. miles an hour. And it's not because you're a big wuss. Right. And it's not, it's not because, because there's something because, because you're a mental weakling. Right. You know, it's because it's because the work that you were doing, the mental work you were doing in your consulting job was creating a chemical change in your brain that prevented you from being able to do the high level workout you want to do at the end of the day. That's exactly right. And yeah. I think it's, you know, it, it, Never forget the brain uses more energy than any other human organ. Right. I mean, it accounts for up to 20% of the body's total caloric consumption, yeah. especially for somebody smart like you, George. So Yeah, it's about 40% for me. Yeah. I think I, think <laughs> I tested it a solid three. <laughs> so let's think about some, some, some takeaways. One, we talked about planning some mental taper throughout the week. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, too, it's important to plan taper a mental taper heading into a, a big race. Mm-hmm. You know? 
when it's when you are going to a big race, a Boston Marathon, a Chicago Marathon, a Chattanooga Triathlon, mm-hmm. shut it down. Mm-hmm. Um, don't start planning or how to do your taxes or something yeah. like that. And that's very tempting for you know busy professionals like us. Totally. I, what what I have found, in fact, and I was talking to another one of the ITL coaches about this recently, is that a lot of times, if somebody's doing say an Ironman or a marathon, like like some big event that requires like a two week long taper, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so they're 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 tapering for the last couple of weeks here, so they have a little bit of extra time. Mm-hmm. And so, how do they fill that extra time? Well, they end up like working harder, right? And they they end up doing all this other stuff they don't normally have time to do. Um, but kind of what, what you're and, and that, that, I, that always ends up driving me crazy, but, but now this kind of gives me the, the language to articulate why it drives me crazy because they're not getting a mental taper and you need that mental taper as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that if you ratchet up your mental stress during the time when you're trying to do a physical taper, you're, you're shooting yourself in the foot. Right. Um, you're, you're, you're literally, um, uh, subverting, uh, sabotaging, undermining, the uh, the physical taper by by not giving yourself the mental taper as well. Right. The goal of the taper is to do what you need to do to relax and give your mind a break, mm-hmm. so you have that kind of mental strength as well as your body. Right. To mm-hmm. to fight the good fight, so to speak, mm-hmm. and you know to let the adenosine fade away. Yeah. Some of my favorite things to do are to watch old movies, watch reruns of old shows you've not already seen, Holocaust documentaries. Right. Right. You know, I one of my actually my favorite thing to do is reread my favorite chapters and my favorite books. Because the story is familiar, um, so it doesn't ask me to challenge myself. And the thoughts are happy because I'm remembering how much I enjoyed those old books. You know, rereading an old author is almost like hearing from an old friend. Right on. Um, So find out what your happy place is. It's not, you know, emotionally engaging. And and try to do, you know, to engage in those activities, so to speak. Um, Because it does happen, and it is something that's not in your imagination. Um, So, you know, the best strategy is to adopt routines and habits that allow you to complete you know, your daily trainings necessarily bef- before that fatigue takes over and the adenosine overwhelms your system and you're not able to, you know, do everything you need to do, you know. Very good. Very good. Um, I mean, yeah, I'm glad you kind of went back and we talked about that a little bit more, if for no other reason, because we, we sort of devolved into talking a little bit more about that mental taper and all that sort of thing too, which I think is good. Um, and, and yeah, I just, you know, it, it's it's one more kind of brick in this wall that I feel like I've been building for myself over the course of the last couple of years that that the brain and the body are just completely aligned with one another. And, right. and, and if you're doing stuff for your body, you have to be doing stuff for your brain as well. Um, and this whole idea, this, um, you know, mind over matter and, you know, your brain is over – like your brain's not necessarily on your side; it's on your body's side, <laughs> right? Um, you know, and so, so I, I, I just, I, I very much have come to feel that more and more and more strongly over the course of the past couple of years with the more and more research that I've been doing, and and um, and the more and more research has been coming out. So yeah, very good. Um, so speaking of the brain, I wanted to to talk about sort of switching gears here a little bit um, about an article that I read this week. That's not really a, a research article; it's not a new research article, but, but it was a, it was a piece uh, in Science News, um, and it ties back to to the brain and it ties back to to all the stuff we've talked about with resting and with sleep uh, specifically and all that sort of thing. So uh, there was this article in uh, in Science News this week, and it was talking about the Wisconsin Registry for Alzheimer's Prevention. Um, which is a study of more than 1,500 people who are between the ages of 40 to 65 when they first signed up. 
Um, now, all of those people, all 1,500 of those people, when they first signed up 30 years ago um, for this Wisconsin Registry for Alzheimer's Prevention, none of them had any symptoms of dementia, uh, but more than 70% of them had a family history of Alzheimer's disease. Um, and so none had any current dementia. Now, what they do is they regularly gather, they take this group of 1,500 people and they regularly gather subgroups and they test them using questionnaires and brain scans and spinal taps and all sorts of other things. Um, and one of the main things they look for when they're actually scanning their brains or doing spinal taps and all that sort of thing is this stuff called amyloid beta, um, which is a protein that can actually clump up in the brain and is considered mm -hmm. to be a telltale sign of dementia and specifically of Alzheimer's disease. So, That's right. Um, so having taken a couple of the subgroups out um, of this Wisconsin registry, um, they, they've published several articles actually based on this group of people and subgroups and different stuff that they've taken out. So, for example, in 2015, there was an uh, a article published in Neurobiology of Aging, um, and it told about a group of 98 people who had questionnaires and brain scans. And what they found was that those who slept badly had more A-beta, more amyloid beta clumping in their brains than people who didn't sleep badly. And so, in other words, people who were sleeping poorly in this one subgroup out of this uh, Wisconsin Registry for Alzheimer's Prevention, people who were sleeping poorly were getting more of that clumping going on with the protein and stuff like that. Um, following up, uh, similar, in 2017, there was an article in uh, neuro Neurology, the, uh, the, the uh, journal Neurology, mm -hmm. told about a group of 101 of them uh, who had questionnaires and they had spinal taps. And likewise, those who slept badly had more of those markers for that protein, um, as well as a lot of inflammation and a lot of the, an, another protein called tau, which is evidently also uh, an indicator of Alzheimer's disease or dementia. Um, and super quickly, sorry, some mm -hmm. of our listeners who are sports fans, uh, tau is a, very similar to... If you've read about um, like football players mm -hmm. and CTE, mm -hmm. it's a, the same. It's oh, tau okay. is that same protein that builds up and causes the dementia, et cetera. Oh, okay, very um, good. So, very good. sorry yeah. to cut you off there, but yeah, I want to make no, that quick no, connection. I think that's important. Yeah, just to give you an idea of just how devastating it can be. Yeah, and 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 the important thing is that there's there's chemical there's chemical indicators, and even though we don't totally understand Alzheimer's and dementia, there are chemical indicators that that seem to suggest that if you have a lot of this, you're gonna have some you're you're gonna have dementia or Alzheimer's disease. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there was a 2017 meta-analysis uh, in the journal Sleep that looked at 27 studies and found that poor sleepers appeared to have about a 68% higher risk of dementia, dementia disorders than those who were well-rested. 68% higher risk uh, of having dementia. Uh, and then finally, there was a 2018 paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. Uh, so just this year, just last month, as a matter of fact, uh, showed that even just one bad night of sleep, and there's a marked increase up to 5% in some areas of the brain just after one night of bad sleep uh, of some of these proteins that, that have been linked mm -hmm. to dementia and to Alzheimer's. So, so you imagine if there's a 5% increase after one bad night, two bad nights, three bad nights, a week, six months, you know, how quickly some of the, these... Um, these dementia or the, these proteins that have been linked to dementia could potentially add, uh, add up in your brain. Um, and, and, so, and then you consider a lot of people are doing this, let's say, for 20, 30 years. Mm -hmm. I mean, right. that's generally yeah. bad sleepers at 20 or bad sleepers at 30, 40, et cetera. Right. right. Now, they, now, they did find that with the, with the people that were younger – that the, the buildup wasn't as much after right. a night and because and they felt like people in their 20s and 30s, their brains were still nimble enough that they could actually take a night of bad sleep or two right. nights or a week of bad sleep or something like that. But once you got up over 40, um, they had these marked increase even after just one night. Um, and so 
the obvious takeaway here, 2015, 2017, another 2017, another 2018, is that there's a direct link, it seems, between between bad sleep, the buildup of these proteins, and dementia. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so it, it also becomes a vicious cycle, by the way. Alzheimer's and dementia ends up disrupting your sleep, and that ultimately ends up making it worse. Not just um, your sleep, but your so. decision-making skills. Yeah. And so, so uh, one third of American adults get less than seven hours of sleep a night, um, and and so that's obviously problematic. Um, we're not sure of the mechanism exactly what it is that sleep does for you that clears out a lot of those proteins, a lot of those those dementia related proteins in your brain. Um, but it's believed that the cerebrospinal fluid probably flows better and thereby scrubs your brain while you're sleeping. Right. Uh, and if you don't sleep, the cerebrospinal fluid never has the opportunity to actually move through your brain and scrub your brain and get rid of those proteins and thereby keeping your brain clear or your mind literally physically clear. If you Right. Will. Yeah. I mean, what do you think about all that? Uh, it, it, it just, as you put it, it just, you know, adds another brick into the wall or the, the argument that, um, the, the mind and the body are not two separate entities. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I can tell you too, I very much was somebody who, who did not value sleep, mm-hmm. um, you know, in high school, college, et cetera, up until I would say probably recently. Um, but the older I get, the more these studies come out and the more too, I, I realize that the reason it's hard to recognize how important sleep is is because when you are not getting sleep, you're not thinking clearly, mm-hmm. right? So it's right. almost like someone who is driving under the influence oftentimes does not realize they're doing it because their decision-making abilities, their cognitive abilities are disrupted, right? Right. Where somebody in the – I shouldn't say the passenger seat, but, so, but an outsider would say, hey, right. wait a minute, this isn't right here. Right. Um, and I think uh, there's a little bit of that principle too with the sleep – um, and then I also want to say this too. Um, I know a lot of people listening are probably thinking, well, this is all great. I know I need sleep. I'm tired. That's why I drink a lot of coffee. What am I supposed to do about it? I have life situations that, that are preventing me from sleeping, whether it be, um, you know, family stress, work stress, you know, life isn't perfect. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do want to say, I, I get it. There are going to be moments or, or times in life, seasons in life where it's, it's going to be difficult to get sleep. But this is why when you do have a chance to get sleep, you need to almost take advantage, right. you know, during those life right. seasons, so to speak. Like, right. I can tell you right now, I don't have any kids in my house. I have no excuse for not getting sleep. <laughs> like, that's just straight up. Yeah. I don't have a job where I'm working late night shifts. I'm not mm-hmm. a nurse. So for somebody like me, I really can't use an excuse. Um, right. So when you do have a chance to really kind of take control of that aspect of your life, I think it's important to do so because there will be moments where whether it be a family member in the hospital or, you know, something of, uh, else where, you know. Or having kids. Or having kids where, yeah. hey, sleep's not in the cards. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. No, so then you almost yeah. need to take advantage so that the buildup isn't that much greater and compounding yeah. on itself. I agree with you. Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, and the, the reason why I brought this up is is in part because we've talked about sleep on this podcast before in terms of, hey, you need to sleep because it will improve your athletic performance. Right. Um, and – and we talk about it not only because it's going to improve your athletic performance, but also because um, we know a lot of people who don't sleep a lot. Right. Um, and so the, the irony of it is that, that um, all of the athletes that we work with, we don't work with any pros. Every single one of them has some other job. Most of them have kids. Yeah. Um, not all, but most of them have kids. And so they have other things in their life that are demanding of their time. And so 
Well, now you're going to fold in training for, for races, sometimes pretty long races on top of that. Right. And so, so they end up sleeping less and less and less and less and less. Um, and so I think that, that by its very nature, we're surrounded by people who, who just don't sleep a whole lot. Right. And which is ironic um, because sleeping more, they would, they would perform better. Um, and so, so, and we, we've talked about and encouraged people to try and sleep more and try and find those opportunities to sleep, even just a little bit. Like you talked about a few weeks ago, even sleeping just 20 minutes more right. can have a, can have a profound influence on their, their, um, their performance. But I, I, I suppose the reason why I'm bringing it up is just to say, yeah, okay, this isn't necessarily about, about athletics, but this is about the, the, the sanctity of your brain right. and your ability to, to hold off dementia. Right. And so, so if we didn't convince you a few weeks ago <laughs> to start right. to start sleeping more in order to improve you your athletic performance, steps, yeah. how about this? Yeah. How about the the direct link that is now being made uh, in lots of different studies between sleeping and dementia? Um, so, if if that doesn't encourage you to try and find a few more opportunities, um, yeah, I don't know what will. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, it. To me, what I, I enjoy about kind of the research that's coming out between like the, the connection between the brain and the body and brain and sleep is it, it seems to be telling me things that we already know, yeah. but it clarifies things we already know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, it, sometimes when you, when you hear something like, that's just not right, something's not right about that, mm-hmm. a lot of times there's a reason. Yeah. Um, but this t- only confirms what a lot of times our body's already telling us. Yeah. And to me, that tells... That's what, right yeah. um, you know, that's, that's what good research does. Yeah, that's that's what good research does. That's what that's what good philosophy does. Right. It, it, it gives us the language to articulate. I mean, I said this just a few minutes ago. It gives us the language to articulate stuff that we kind of already knew. Right. Um, or stuff that we've picked up via experience. Um, it, it gives us the rationale, um, and sometimes it gives us the, the the push. It gives us literally the boost to, to force us to actually do it. Um, um, and so, yeah, I think that's important. All right. So so. We kind of did segue to segue to segue. I think we're going to have to do like a, a, a rough grinding of gears here to go to our next topic. So what's our next topic? Uh, let's see. Do we want to start with we'll, – we'll go with the uh, 3K or – You want to talk about the track meet? Yeah. All right. Let's talk about a little bit of news. Go ahead. Right, so, so um, well, let's talk about the Tour de France. We're going to talk about so, – so if we're going to talk about some news, let's talk about some, some recent stuff. And then I actually have one other piece of research I want to share from the New York Times. But, um, but yeah, the Tour de France is ending today. Mm-hmm. So I know you're excited about that, Patrick. I am indeed. Actually, I guess you're sad that it's coming to an end today. Um, yeah. But no, it was. It turned out to be a great race. Uh, the race is going to be won, and this is not a spoiler because this was already determined uh, by Garrett Thomas, who's going to become the first Welshman ever to win. Mm-hmm. Um, he's uh, the third British rider to win, um, but the uh, the first Welshman to win. Um, uh, he's on Team Sky, uh, the same team as Chris Froome, the defending champion. Yeah. Um, and he ended up getting a little bit of space and a little bit of extra room on his teammate, and then... Everybody's like, oh, well, you know, Chris Froome will probably take over. He's the team leader and all that sort of thing. Even Garrett Thomas himself said, oh, well, no, Chris Froome is still our team leader. He's still our pick to win the race. Uh, we'll see what happens during the third week. What happened during the third week is that Garrett Thomas was as strong as anybody else in the race. Nobody could catch him, and right. he's winning the race. Um, so Chris Froome kind of went on and off the podium now. It looks like he's going to finish third. Tom Dumoulin was second. Um, it was it was a very tight race, as a matter of fact. Um, all three of them were only separated by about two and a half minutes total. Um, so, yeah, it was super tight. Um, Primoz Roglic uh, was, uh, ended up being fourth and was somebody that I was kind of excited it, to see do well. And as someone who's not uh, – you know, an avid cycling fan. To me, the Garrett Thomas story is fascinating. Oh, yeah. I mean, to me, it's almost the most fascinating story I've seen in cycling since Lance Armstrong. Yeah. Because I mean, first of all, you you may know this. 
is there a precedent for this of some because i i understand that kind of every team has to say all right this person is our star so we're gonna do everything we can to get them up front yeah right and everybody else is almost like a worker bee right Right. you know a worker ant um to the queen or so um and then this guy as a worker ant just like takes the win takes the win yeah Yeah. and then and the the other thing too is folks kind of saw it coming for about a week or so it seemed like and then before finally they had to flip the switch and i think i don't know if chris Froome uh said yeah this guy's gonna win let's support him i don't really know exactly how that went down he did about three days ago okay he did only until so so they have the first week of the tour and then they have the alps and then they have the pyrenees and then they have the final time trial right and and it wasn't until the last pyrenean stage when when chris Froome said he's the guy um, it was after that last Pyrenean stage when Garrett Thomas did not fall off the pace and he ended up putting more time into Chris Froome and finishing farther in front of Chris Froome. Yeah. When Chris Froome, and it's literally on stage uh, uh, 19 out of 21 stages, or 18 out of 21 stages, where, where Chris Froome was finally willing to say, he's the guy. Um, and that, that was the first time. Um, but no, to answer your question, is there a precedent for this? There's not a quite a precedent for this. Right. There is a precedent for for teams going in with like multiple leaders and it never works because <laughs> because you need to have everybody on the same page um, so if anything that almost shows just how yeah. difficult this is oh for how. sure and 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 then there's also not a precedent for them doing it and them smiling while doing it like garrett thomas was super um uh, magnanimous and he was like no no chris Froome is our leader and you know and we'll have to see what happens in the third week and we're also getting along and all that sort of thing like the most famous case of this happened in the late nineteen eighties with Greg LeMond and Bernardino. Um, and the two of them hated each other. Yeah, absolutely. And, and they were like screwing each other the whole race and backbiting each other and like attacking when they weren't supposed to attack and ignoring their team orders and 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 it was just a disaster. Mm-hmm. Um, and then one of them ends up being able to pull it off. But um, but for them to actually be able to do it and have it be harmonious, that's unprecedented. Absolutely. Um, and and um, you know, Alberto Contador um, won the Tour de France over one of his teammates, Lance Armstrong. It was during Lance Armstrong's comeback a few years ago. Um, and afterwards said, I had to win two races, one on the road and one in the hotel. Um, and, and to this day, Lance Armstrong has nothing good to say about Alberto Contador. He just can't stand the guy. Yeah. Um, and so, so the, 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 where this might be precedent-breaking is not that you had two teammates that did so well but that they did so well and they still seemed to like each other at the end. <laughs> yeah. You know, and they both did it graciously. That's what's been so odd to me. That's what I did. I wondered if not being an avid fan, I just didn't see it, mm-hmm. but that's what struck me out to mm-hmm. me. So here's another question. Are I mean, you imagine, a- imagine if Tom Brady, imagine if, and this is going to be a strain metaphor because I know, it's a football I, metaphor, but imagine if Tom Brady like got injured and, and missed a game. And so, so you took like like somebody who's been his chief lieutenant for a long time, and that person goes in and is just awesome and is amazing, and everybody's like, "This is the greatest quarterback ever! I can't believe it." What would Tom Brady then say to the press? Would he to be like, <laughs> "Yes, he's awesome, and isn't it great that he came in and was able to fill this role for our team?" Would Tom Brady say that? George, do you? No, have, he would not say that. Do you have any <laughs> idea what you just did there? Okay. First of all, do you know how Tom Brady came to be? 
Yeah, actually, he was that guy. Yeah, he? he was that oh, guy. Yeah, I forgot that. Yeah, nice. <laughs> well done, sir. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Um, you're smart. You know, but, but, you know but, I'm, but I'm certain that but, whoever but, the the starting quarterback is that Tom Brady supplanted was not like, isn't this great that this new young guy is coming along? Isn't that fantastic? And likewise, Tom Brady wasn't saying, "Oh, I'm just here for a little while. I'm just holding the spot right. until so and so comes back." Right. Right. I'm certain that's not the way that that went down. Yeah, never. And I can tell you, in NFL, NBA, that's how great teams get torn down is egos get yeah. involved. Yeah. You know, they always say that the two problems in sports are you don't have a superstar or you have two superstars. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Shaq and Kobe was probably mm-hmm. the, the biggest example ever. But so here's kind of a follow-up to get back to cycling. Does this make you a bigger fan of Chris Froome than you were 30 days ago? Okay, so so I have ne- I never got off the Chris Froome bandwagon, right. I should say. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, a lot of the stuff that, that I, 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 was ne- I was never an ardent fan. Yeah. Um, but my my appreciation for him did not wane as a result of all the subbutamol stuff. Like I, I kind of felt the same about him at the end as I did at the beginning. Um, now I I realize that not everybody would say that. I mean, he was being booed and being hissed at and punched and all sorts of things throughout the course of this race by people on the side of the road, and that's terrible. And Garrett Thomas, by the way, got a lot of the runoff from that yeah. just because he was his teammate. Um, and so so, um, but I do think I I do think it's interesting. I wonder whether some of those people who are so critical of Chris Froome are now looking at him and looking at how gracious he was in the last couple of days. And I haven't watched today's stage today, the final stage. And so, you know, I'm assuming that he's going to be gracious today here on the last stage. Last stage, from for the most part, is kind of a parade into Paris, and they they'll drink champagne and they'll they'll finish with their arms around each other and stuff like that. You know, so I'm presuming that that Chris Froome is still being gracious today. Um, but yeah, I don't know whether that's going to change the minds of some people to say like, oh, you know what, Chris Froome maybe he's not so bad after all. I right. don't know. We'll see. Right. Yeah, for me, it doesn't change my mind because I, it, my, my, I never thought all that badly of him in the first place. Good point. A um, couple other kind of things. Uh, Peter Sagan uh, from Slovakia is going to win his sixth green jersey. Um, he was actually kicked out of the tour pretty early on last year. He probably would have won the green jersey last year as well. Uh, but in winning six green jerseys, that's one of the other races within the race, the so-called points race, or some people call it the sprinters race, uh, he's going he's tying for the most uh, that anybody's ever won, tied a guy named Eric Zabel. Um, and Peter Sagan's still at the peak of his career. Um, and so he's going to break that record uh, and continue to go on. Um, um, and then we should also mention finishing last place, who's going to come in, the so-called Lantern Rouge, which is kind of a place of prominence and, and appreciation in the Tour de France, is America's own Lawson Craddock. He is going to finish the Tour de France after breaking his scapula on stage one. Um, he, he is finishing, the which is mind-blowing. Um, but I had, I had said before that he uh, he said that for every stage he finished, he would give $100 to the velodrome in Houston where he's from that was damaged by Hurricane Harvey. Um, well, a lot of people have jumped on that bandwagon, and he's now raised close to $150,000 for that velodrome. It's going to be like the nicest velodrome on the planet. <laughs> and and just people that appreciate what he's done. Um, there was a special T-shirt that, that Mellow Johnny's, which is Lance Armstrong's uh, a bike shop in Austin, created that I bought. And all the proceeds are going to be going to uh, to to that velodrome in Houston. So super cool. So uh, big chapeau, big hat tip to uh, to to Lawson Craddock for Jesus cracked scapula in the first stage, just a flesh wound. Yeah, right. Oh. Uh, to finish even that stage, and then stitches in his eyeball or in his eye. Uh, to just finish that stage was heroic enough, but then he goes on and does 20 more stages and finishes the Tour de France over mountains and time trials and everything else. Just yeah. absolutely incredible. So uh, big ups to American Lawson Craddock for uh, making Americans look good when you're in France. 
Um, all right, let's talk about your news. Sure. Uh, and I know we're running short on time, so let's yeah, try okay. to, to make it quick. But uh, my news is regarding the women's steeplechase in the Manasso Diamond League. Mm-hmm. Um, so first of all, there's the 3,000-meter steeplechase. Uh, like, well, I guess I just said that. And the field was stacked with talent. It was largely the same field as the Olympic field or the world championship field from, from the year before. Mm-hmm. Um, they had a rabbit um, set at a world record pace, and um, then a world record was set by Kenya's Beatrice Chepkochi, or Kepchogi. Um, I'm terrible with phonics. Chep Kepchogi, yes, mm-hmm. I apologize. And an American record was set by Courtney Freirich? Uh, Friedrich, yeah. Friedrich, yeah. Um, so let's, uh, let's start with the world record. Um, I mean, she smashed the world record running the 3,000-meter race in 8 minutes and 44 seconds, which means she was ru- averaging roughly 439 per mile mm-hmm. while hurdling 28 hurdles and 7 water jumps yeah. in that race. Yeah. Um, so fo- for folks who, who maybe have not seen a track race, for the, for the steeplechase, they have hurdles placed throughout the track, and then they have one big water hurdle where you're not just hurdling over the hurdle. You're having to like launch yourself off the hurdle and over like a pit of water. And right. it's actually a deep pit, so you do not want to fall in. Right. Um, and that starts to really build over time. Like you see the first lap, they can clear the hurdles easily, but then right. by six or seven, it takes a, a lot of energy to, to clear. Um, she broke the previous record of eight minutes and 52 seconds, which was set in 2016 by someone who was on drugs. Yes. And she finished 16 seconds ahead of her nearest rival. Um, watching the race, what was beautiful about it is she was just driving away from the field very early on. Um, you don't expect a gap as, as big as what she put on the field in a race that that's it, that's that big and the, and the competition is that high level. So it was pretty incredible. I mean, the race was over about two thousand meters into a three thousand meter race. Um, now Kenyans in the steeplechase do have a tendency to go out a little faster and not be able to hold it. Um, you know, they tend not to be quite as powerful in their running gait, which starts to show over the course of a, of a steeplechase race where they're having to, to kind of leap and and bound over and over again. Um, it gets a little bit back to the strength, some of the strength training points we, we made um, in our last podcast. But I have to say, it was, the race was over very early on. So it was, it was beautiful to watch. Um, and then, of course, um, Courtney Friedrich, she set the American steeplechase record by eight seconds. She's only 25 years old. Um, she was a 2016 Olympian and a silver medalist in the 2017 World Championships. And she finished the race in nine minutes flat, 9-0-0. Um, and she, like I said, the crazy part is she ran the fastest time in U.S. history, but still finished 16 seconds behind right. the winner in she her own race. She beat by 100 meters. Right. Yeah. Um, so it was the first time, and it was the first time she'd beat fellow U.S. steeplechaser Emma Coborn, who, who finished um, fourth in the race with a 9.05, and previously held the national record of 9.02. Right. So hats off to all the women in that race, um, to all the athletes in that race. Uh, there were so many spectacular performances. And watching Chep Kochi in particular, it was almost like watching a great in any other sport. I Chep Kochi. Chep Kochi. <laughs> I'm so sorry, guys. I've... Yeah, no, that's um, – I, I don't want to add anything to what Patrick said, and I agree with everything he said. But but just to say this, two years ago, the the world record in the women's steeplechase was 9-10. Yeah. Uh, and now it's 8-44. Right. Um, and so the, the, the world record in a race that is less than two miles long has come down 26 seconds in, in a little over two years, uh, which is stunning. Um, she, if, if you throw out the time, that 8.52 time um, that, that, that Patrick mentioned that was run by uh, Celephine Chespool, or no, that was run by um, uh, uh, Ruth Jabet, um, 
then that means that the second fastest steeplechase of women of all time is 858. And so, she, and that's by Cellophane Chesspool. And yeah. so, so she is, she's the fastest, she's the world record holder by 14 seconds. <laughs> right. I mean, that's, that's, that's stunning. And a race that's barely over two miles um, or ba- just short of two miles. Um, and so really and truly now, obviously in, in track and field, some people have, have started coming. There's no way that this is clean and, and, I, I don't really want to get into that, right. um, but but I think that if we presume that it is, this is uh, one of the uh, most incredible uh, races that we've ever seen. Um, yeah, just amazing, just incredible. Um, yeah, and as, as you said, we hope it's clean, but let's uh, let's enjoy it while we're watching it because that's part of what sports is about is yeah. admiring yeah. Uh, yeah. superlative performances. Yeah. Uh, I'll mention, by the way, speaking of that Monaco Diamond League meet. Um, there was a, a 17-year-old Norwegian kid ran 331 for 1500, which is like running a 348 mile, and he was 17 years old. Um, and he finished uh, he finished ahead of the Olympic champion from the United States, Matthew Sinchowitz, though. Um, but his name is is, is Philip. Um, uh, his name is Jacob Ingbertson. Um, and interestingly enough, Jacob Ingbertson's brother is named Philip Ingbertson, and Philip Ingbertson is uh, has run 330. Um, and then the fastest time, the, the Norway, uh, Norwegian record for 1,500 meters is Philip Ingbertsen. The second fastest is Jacob Ingbertsen. The third fastest is Heinrich Ebertsen. Um, and they are all Norwegian brothers. And they've run the three fastest mm-hmm. times in Norwegian history. Um, and they're fast. They're That's 330 phenomenal. and 331. They're, they're, you know, 347, 348 mile pace. Um, and so, so in other words, uh, if you run 332 and you're from Norway, you're going to be, you know, the, uh, the, the, the fourth fastest Norwegian of all time, but the three guys that are going to be faster than you are all from the same family. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a little bit like, I can't remember who it was, but there was somebody where they said his greatest sin was being born the same year as Michael Jordan. He was a basketball player. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's like, well, tough oh, yeah. luck. <laughs> when, when, I, when I was in college, there was a guy that, uh, there was a guy at Wake Forest when I was in college named John Sense. Um, and John Sense uh, grew up in Indiana. And John Sense, in his senior year in high school, finished second in the uh, in the Foot Locker National Championships, which at the time was called the Kenny Cross Country Championships. He was also second at the state championship. He was also second at the county and the region championship. And that's because just down the street from him was a guy named Bob Kennedy. And Bob Kennedy won, was, was the best distance runner in the United States. And so you literally had the two best distance runners in the United States were both from the same region, Indiana. Sounds like he needed to move to Illinois. I know, right? <laughs> and so, so John, since one of the great all-time runners, never has a state championship because he lived down the street from the greatest runner of that of that era. Um, anyway. All right. So it's uh, we've been jumping all over the place. All right. What right. about we talk about your New York Times study here? All right. All right. And then we'll, we'll kind of wrap it up with that. Yeah, I think that's sounds the way good, to do sounds it. Sounds good. Uh, I do want to give a quick shout out. There was a guy named Peter Thompson, by the way. We were talking about the Tour de France, who ran the whole Tour de France route. I'm uh, glad you mentioned that, yeah. Yeah, so, so by all means, look that up on Runner's World here. But he started back in May. He ran about 30 miles uh, about thirty miles a day over the course of a couple of months. And, and that's over the mountains and over the cobbles and everything else, just like they did on bikes on the Tour de France. And so kudos to, uh, to Peter Thompson for actually doing that. Uh, he did it as part of a, uh, 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 a fundraising effort um, for a foundation that he has started called Marathons for the Mind that, that raises money to fight mental illness. And so, so kudos to wow. him. Wow. 
Um, so yeah. Um, all right. So this last thing we'll talk about here is uh, an article that came out last week in the New York Times. It was about the Vaporfly four percent. Now, most of us have, have, who follow running have been kind of fascinated by the Vaporfly four percent shoes. Galen Rupp wore them when he uh, won the Chicago Marathon. Shalane Flanagan wore them when she won the New York City Marathon. Um, Elliot Kipchoge was wearing them when he ran two hours and twenty four seconds for the marathon um, in Monzi. And so, so um, they're shoes that, as you can guess by the name. Uh, that Nike claims can improve your performance by up to 4%. Now, that claim seems ridiculous um, mm-hmm. um, just because it's just such an incredible amount. I mean, imagine that simply changing your shoes will take six minutes off of your marathon time if you're a three-hour marathoner yeah. simply by changing your shoes. Um, that seems hard to believe. Um, now, that being said, most people that I know that have run of them um, whether they've experienced a 4% difference or not, they have said that they, it feels as if they're cheating. It feels as if they're running on springs and moving faster and all that sort of thing. I don't know. But they, Vaporflies, they cost $250. They're not very durable. They only last for about 100 miles, they've said. Um, there's a carbon plate in them that provides a little spring for you. Um, and they're extremely difficult to find. They're sold out everywhere, and you can find them on eBay and stuff at, for like $650 and stuff like that. But... Uh, what the New York Times did is they had an article, like I said, a couple of weeks ago um, uh, entitled, Nike says it's $250 running shoes will make you run much faster. What if it's that's actually true? And, and what they did is they went on Strava. And using public race reports and shoe records from Strava, um, the New York Times found that runners in the Vaporflies did, in fact, run 3 to 4% faster than similar runnings wearing, runners wearing other shoes uh, and more than 1% faster than the next fastest racing shoe. Um, now, what they did is they looked at more than 700 races in dozens of countries since 2014 and up through 2018, uh, and they compiled the results from about 280,000 marathon and about 215,000 half marathon completed races. Um, they looked at about 40,000, 39,000 to 40,000 runners total, but like we said, over 500,000 races that those 40,000 runners ran. Not um, a small sample size. No, a gigantic sample size. And they, 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 uh, controlling for a lot of variables through the methods, they they said that not it was not explained by faster runners choosing to wear the shoes, by runners choosing to wear them in easier races, by runners switching to vaporflies after running more training miles, anything else like that. Uh, ultimately, they said, "quote Instead, the analysis suggests that in a race between two marathoners of the same ability, a runner wearing vaporflies would have a real advantage over a competitor not wearing them." Uh, they went on to say the advantages for running wearing vaporflies were consistent for slower racers and fast ones, for men and for women, for runners on their second ra- marathon or their fifth. Unquote. Um, now they did a couple of things with all this data. So they take all this data and they did a few things. First thing is they took a statistical approach. They did kind of what you would expect an academician to do. They plugged in age, gender, miles trained, weather, course, average finishing times of the races. Uh, and when they did that and they crunched all those numbers, they found a four percent improvement in the vaporflies and no pr- improvement improvement with any other shoe every other shoe was exactly the same except for the vapor flies which was this four percent outlier <laughs> um then they they um they took all that same data and they compared groups of runners who compete completed the same two races and so for example of the um they did this with a bunch of different races but for for as an example of this they looked at uh, runners who did the Boston Marathon in both 2017 and 2018, and they found there was 1,275 runners that did both the 2017 Boston Marathon and the 2017 uh, Boston Marathon. Of those 
1,275 runners, 52 of them switched to Vaporflies for their 2018 race. Mm-hmm. And on the whole, they found that those runners' times improved more than, de- than the group of runners who did not. Um, most people, essentially, that ran both 2018, 2017 and 2018, despite all the weather issues, ran about the same over the course of those two years. Um, the people who switched to Vaporflies, 85% of them ran faster in 2018 even though the weather conditions were so bad in 2018. 85% of the people who switched to vapor flies between the 2017 Boston and 2018 Boston ran faster. And they did that with a lot of other races, like comparing spot races right. like that, right? Um, they also focused on what they called shoe switchers. Um, they said that they had almost 4,000 runners who had uploaded results for five marathons or more. Um, and so they looked at the people who had switched shoes over the course of those five marathons or more, and they found that people who switched to the vapor flies improved their times more than runners who had switched to any other kind of popular shoe. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and then finally looked at race histories. Um, they considered folks who had run several marathons and found that specifically when they ran in vapor flies versus when they didn't run in other shoes or when they ran in other shoes, they had faster times. Um, so this only compares Vaporflies with other popular shoes. There could be some really obscure shoe that you know actually is performing better than the Vaporfly. We don't know. Um, uh, but this is a huge amount of data, and it's consistent with Nike studies and some of the independent studies on the shoes that seem to suggest that, yes, indeed, there is about a 4% return. Um, what do you think? Uh, yeah, so this, this study to me – so I will tell you, when I first heard the, the 4% claim, my honest – uh, thought was well done, Nike. What a great marketing campaign! <laughs> like as a communications person, I was I was almost more impressed with them from a communications perspective than a you know exercise science perspective. But this study does really kind of um, build up the case that if nothing else, the Vaporfly has made a significant improvement in in human performance. Right? You yeah, know, I mean, whether whether or not we want to get stuck on the four percent or not, the bottom line is it. And if you look at yeah. Um, so I obviously read the study too, before doing the podcast and I was comparing like to the, the shoes that I run in, mm-hmm. right. And my shoes were like a 1% performance over like mm-hmm. the average or something like mm-hmm. that. So, and a lot of the popular shoes that most of the people we train with run in was like a 1% performance right. improvement, or so, which makes sense, right? Because running, I always tell people, this is a sport where if your shoes are bad, you will know right away. Mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't take many mi- much mileage mm-hmm. to know you need to feel something's off. Um, but to see that much of an improvement and to see them beat the bell curve by that much was yeah. astonishing. Yeah. And as you pointed out, the, if you read the study, they got very PhD with it. Like they mm-hmm. did not just copy and paste, do an Excel spreadsheet. I mean, they really went. Yeah. They dove deep into the data. Well, yeah, and it was and they and they did it both in what we would call quantitative and qualitative ways. Exactly. Like that first one was a quantitative way, the statistical approach where they plugged all the data into a to to a formula mm-hmm. and and it spit out all of these, you know, numbers. That's that's the quantitative way. Right. But then comparing groups of runners who compared the same two races, focusing on the shoe switchers, that's all qualitative. Right. Um and so and so they it and it it showed an improvement at both the quantitative and the quantitative level and, and and that to me is kind of incredible and frankly makes me want to go out and buy a pair of shoes yeah exactly, me too and the other thing too is you know we 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 talk a lot about oh the weather was good or the hills or i didn't feel so good and it they control for that and well, what i was going to say is all of that almost was washed out with the by the numbers but the effects of the mm-hmm. shoe wasn't right right like you would think oh well, of course there's going to be a difference because you know, in 2017, maybe more people train harder, or in 2018, mm-hmm. 
that all got washed away. All of the things yeah. we talk about all the time when we when we talk with family and friends about how our training's mm-hmm. going, how our race goes, was kind of washed away yeah. by the large sample size, which yeah. is how right. this works, right? The more sample size you right. get, the the less randomness there yeah, is. Yeah, forty five thousand people, five hundred thousand, more than five hundred thousand races, right? I mean, yeah, the the sample numbers are huge. I mean, like they said, they said there were twelve hundred seventy five runners who ran Boston both years. Right. And 52 of them switched to Vaporfly. Those are big numbers. Right. Um, those are big, big sample size. And that's only comparing Boston. That's not comparing other ones. Yeah, the the if something about this. And, and I'm I'm from academia. I work in academia. And and so, so research studies, like the one from the University of Colorado, which was an independent study, which was a good study. It was um, that showed a 4% thing. And they, they used their weighted treadmills and all that stuff. I mean, that was a convincing study to me. Something about this makes it feel more real, and I don't know why that is. Um, you know, is is it because I'm so impressed by the large sample size? Is it because I'm a Strava user and I can identify with these research subjects really well? I don't know what it is, but but something about this feels really compelling. I think what feels so compelling about it is we are have been a little tainted with like you know tobacco funding studies in academia. Yeah, maybe yeah. And so when when I found out, oh, they did a study on the Nike shoes, I couldn't help but wonder if Nike funded the study. Mm-hmm. Um, in some way, or if yeah. Nike had some s- subsidiary, th- yeah, where it's like, oh, this is you know, like I think with the tobacco companies, they yeah. would have it funded by Kraft Cheese, but Kraft was owned right. by the same people. Um, but this was like, I don't know how it could be gained, right? So yeah, you can't you can't put your thumb on the Strava scale, right? I mean, this is this is people that are that are self-reporting their own. I mean, mm-hmm. and and there's there's flaws in it, and and. Those of you who are academicians out there who are listening to it, I mean, it, there's a, a huge lack of controls in this study. Right. Um, you know, for example, they, they, they joked that um, they, they found over 140 different ways that people spelled Vaporfly on Strava. <laughs> They, 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 and they just presumed that they were all talking about vapor flies, and so they just aggregated all that data together. Right. Um, you know, and, and, and that's great, and that's what they should have done. But that's obviously a flaw in the study design. And so, but, but they didn't try and hold themselves up as if, oh, yeah, we're going to publish this in, in a journal. I mean, they, 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 it's the New York Times. Um, and they said this is, this is good enough for, for you know, a, a thought piece inside of, of uh, a major newspaper. Mm-hmm. And it was. Um, but yeah, I find it very compelling. I, I already sort of had on my radar, maybe I should try and get some of those. And then I've had to start wearing orthotics again. I've kind of gone back and be like, well, maybe not. Now I'm like, well, maybe it's worth trying to squeeze more orthotics into those things. You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, so we'll see. Your jury's still out on whether I'm going to make the purchase. I will be sure to, to, to report to our podcast fans if I do, but um, but yeah, I found that interesting. By all means, folks, write us in and tell us whether you think this is compelling or completely, you know, useless. And I would say too, look up your own shoes because they yeah. they don't just list the vapor yeah. flies. They have a whole yeah. chart that says, "Are you found vapor flies have a four percent endurance burst, uh, a boost?" Excuse me. I think Adidas boost was like second yeah. or so. But they they have like five different ways, like or excuse me, not five, four different ways of of measuring performance and yeah. so yeah it's it's not perfect but they did try to aggregate a lot of and data then, and then they broke it down by marathon and half marathon right. as well and there were some differences there i mean you know one to two percent differences not big differences but 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 differences are worth considering yeah, so fascinating study if nothing uh, else it, it adds you know an, another piece of information to chew on or to consider absolutely more for us to think about um when we're trying to make our our shoe decisions um well, all right, all right, man. I think that brings us to the end here. We uh, we had a lot of real estate to cover, and I think we mostly covered today. So yeah. So what is your what is your big takeaway maybe from this discussion? Drink more coffee. 
Drink more coffee? Oh, you mean this whole discussion? Or you mean the one on the vapor flies? Just our <laughs> hour of shooting it while drinking coffee and good question yeah somebody told us a few weeks ago that we need to we need to always wrap up with a couple of takeaways and i feel like we were so all over the place today it might be hard to say so uh what's yours i would say so so getting back to 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 mental fatigue you know the good news for all of us busy professionals out here is that the fatigue we feel at the end of the day at the end of a long day is not imaginary yeah it is real um so maybe you know don't beat yourself up you know, don't beat your head against the wall if you're tired at the end of the day. Yeah. Sometimes instead of beating yourself up, it's best to, you know, for giving up, maybe it's best to give ourselves a pat on the back for growing up and learning more about what we can and what we can't do. Right on, man. Um, you know, now the flip side of that is now we have we have greater knowledge for how to take responsibility and control of our life. So we mm-hmm. need to know, okay, this is what I can do and what I can't. So I can't use, you know, certain excuses. I need to set myself up for success here. Yeah. I guess I guess as you're talking, as I'm thinking about it, if there was one big takeaway for today, I would be I would say take care of your brain. Yeah, um, you know, the, pay pay attention to to your brain. Consider um, your brain as a working part of your body, the same way that you consider every other part of your body a working part of your body. So take care of your brain. Absolutely. Um, all right, man. Appreciate it. We will see everybody next time. That'll do it for another installment of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. Thanks for joining us. You can find us on Twitter at Pleasant Podcast or on Facebook, facebook.com slash Pleasant Podcast. Don't forget to check out our sponsors too. You can find ITL Coaching and Performance at itlcoaching.com, at ITL Coaching on Twitter, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash ITL Coaching and Performance. And, of course, our new sponsor, Blue Pineapple Travel, a full-service travel agency that can book travel anywhere in the world for you. They're on Facebook at facebook.com slash Travel, on Instagram at instagram.com slash Travel, or simply at bluepineappletravel.com. On behalf of Patrick Ollinger, this is George Darden. Thanks again for joining us on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. See you next time.